Well, I hope you all are ready for another incandescent episode of Wolf in Tune. And my guest today uh, has been called a pioneer, a legend, musical royalty, and an icon of the New Age universe, the one and only Laraji. Welcome, Laraji. Vast greetings, uh, Richard. Pleasure to be here now this way. And it's great to see you again in your orange delight. How is Harlem today? What's it like? Harlem is sunny. The sidewalks are alive. It's a very neighborhoody kind of space here in Harlem. Subway, major transit hub is just up the street, but people are on the sidewalks with chairs and and makeshift vendors. And so there's a buzz of life here. It's sterile by no means sterile here. Lovely. And by the way, when you're talking about these uh, sidewalk vendors, etc., you spent a lot of time in your life playing music on sidewalks, didn't you? Yes. Uh, in the late 70s, some early 80s, it was a cross between experimental, uh, divine mission, uh, moneymaker, uh, recreation, social connection, and uh, it's a way of embracing New York. I have a, had a romantic affair with New York. So you haven't done the sidewalk busking? They call that busking, right? They called it that when I got to Europe. They oh. asked me about it, and I asked, what are you talking about? <laughs> <laughs> and that's, busking is usually focused on playing your livelihood. Of course, your artistic intention and vision is involved, but uh, busking in terms of for money, although money was uh, involved in there, but my exploration was to see if by playing from and in a meditative space, what would uh, passerbys receive from the sound. Okay. And you haven't been busking lately? No, not officially, but busking on the sidewalks, the plazas and parks of New York imprinted a performance model on me. You know, the random public audience, trucks going by uh, and playing directly into the field. And so on stage, when I do concert work, I don't remember pieces. I go on stage and I have that performance model from my busking years of being in the moment, grooving, bringing forth uh, my inner meditation, which I usually practice before performance. So I bring that uh, early busking performance model with me on my tour and my performance, and it works very well. So in that sense, I have been busking uh, energetically in live performance. Beautiful. The paycheck is bigger. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I'm, I'm wondering when you were doing that, and for a very long time, I, I heard that you were, you know, in some interview, you said you spent years living month to month. Yes, uh, working out the rent month to month. And during those times, there were sometimes I calculated I would get $6 an hour. I calculated it. And uh, I said, that's a pretty constant. I'm wondering if people are listening to the music or they think I am infirm because I'm sitting on cross legs on the sidewalks playing music. Then uh, money started to go up the more uh, I bring interesting patterns into the music or I began selling cassettes along with my music. So you kind of got discovered while busking by Brian Eno back in nineteen early 1980s, right? Yes, Brian left me a message in my zither case after a night of playing in the northwest, northeast corner of a... Washington Square Park in Greenwich Village, one of my favorite places to play at, at that time. Uh, like a cobblestone circle with a tree in the middle, and there were benches around the edge of the cobblestone circle. So people could sit and just chill while I sat in the center of the tree with my legs crossed on a carpet, playing this open-tune electric zither through an old Panasonic tape recorder, which doubled as a speaker and that night after playing i remember counting my change and uh, seeing this p 
piece of paper in my uh, case looked like it was ripped from a rather expensive notebook, too, if I think this person's really got a message to give me. And I read it, and it says, Dear sir, please excuse this impromptu uh, note. Um, I'm wondering if you'd be interested in talking about collaborating on a project I'm working with. Signed, Brian Eno. Right. Yeah, but only a month ago, some people at that very same place brought up the name of Eno, Frickman Eno, wanted to know if I was familiar with their music, and I wasn't. So a month later, there, there is Brian Eno sending me a message. I hooked up with him the next day, bought some fruit juice, went by his place, and sat and talked about relevant and unrelevant things, and finally got around to ambient music. And that might have been the first time I really heard the word ambient, referred to music. And he was politely struggling <laughs> to get me to wrap my brain around the concept of ambient, sort of like music that's in space, if not uh, uh, engaging you to have to focus on it. This is a, an environment, a space within which you can think, create, do whatever but that it isn't be the forefront, more of background or the field music. That's what I got from his talk. And, but I assured him that if we went into the studio, something interesting would happen, regardless of how deeply I connected with the term ambient. So I went into a studio there in Greenwich Village on Green Street. I think it was called Green's or Apple Studio, one or the other. We recorded what he was aware of, my hammered zither, ecstatic music. And while in the studio, I did some tracks of the more meditative, tranquil pieces. And what wound up happening is that the static pieces were a keeper. We took the best two of three pieces, I believe, or three pieces. But the tranquil pieces were good, but that particular location, studio, there were mechanical sounds leaking in from some other part of that Soho uh, building. So we had to go into a studio so six months later to re-record the meditative tracks. Of course, they were different and new. It's always new and different. But they turned out to be the sides that are called Meditation 1, Meditation 2, Meditation number 3. And there, that happened, and that was released through, I think, EG Records at the time. So the dance, the first three cuts, is that uh, the ecstatic music? Yes, ecstatic, blissful, joyful. Um, the excitation, to me, it was an impressionistic uh, representation of the moment of encounter with a euphoric state, specifically that uh, hearing the cosmic sound current in the now of 1974 during a meditation session. With the, the ecstasy, the ecstatic feeling of listening to this cosmic music just release my emotional body, my breath from all sense of being entangled in a linear third dimension field. It's a, a very miraculous experience. And the music was uh, calling me forward upward into this expanded conscious awareness of eternal nowness and the simultaneity of the universal feel. All of this going on while immersed in this music, an analytical side of me kept coming forward as, hey, this is cool. We, we can't record this. We can't write it down. What are we going to do with this? Um, so it might have lasted 10, five minutes, uh, lost track of time. but. Uh, as I try to recall that experience, eventually I was starting to notice more and more of the detail of that experience. And one of the major details was the awareness of a non-dimensional space and non-dimensional time. In the, in the midst of the music going on, this music was drawing my focus to a sense of space and time I was not familiar with. And so that's what the essence of, I can't reproduce that music can't write it down, but the memory of this uh, translinear realm is what I reach for in the music, putting music into this 
spatial awareness. And that's why the music tends to be ecstatic. It's like going beyond the physical sense of self and tasting the feel and tasting the eternal. And it's just wordless there. Yeah, what I love about the dance stuff is the rhythmic element that you bring to it. You know, to me, it's meditative when, when you know, it's called dance. Yes. And then you have meditation cuts. But to me, and I don't know why, and I'd love for you, maybe, maybe you know why, because the assumption is for a lot of people that meditation music, ambient, new age, whatever, is going to be slow. It's going to have drones. Yes. Um, maybe you have some string Indian string instruments that are a little bit more active. But with this kind of music that you're doing, you have polyrhythms and you're playing the in open tunings, but you're playing with brushes or sticks. Why is that meditative? Well, my intention while, while playing, my lifestyle is uh, meditation-centric, especially at that time. But when I'm doing hammered work, uh, there's something called Brownian motion, where molecules are going every which way, like if you were to look at a gaseous state, liquids heated to a gaseous state, and look at a microphone, you'd see the molecules flying all over the place. Right. And uh, I use that imagery at times to play zither. It's a random blitz of the string to create this swell of harmonics. And that Brownian motion to me represented um, drawing the mind out of its absorption in the linear local story narration so that the, the mind or the awareness is somehow liberated and able to just be present. And that to me would be a meditative state. Secondly, at times during that rhythm, I use imagery of dancers or people patting their feet, a happy rhythm, and I'll do the hammered rhythms to that. And also, uh, which might not sound from Ruiz, um, town where I grew up, Port Amour, New Jersey, there was often once a year something called a Veterans Day Parade. And I remember watching the veterans marching and the drum rhythm. Those rhythms stuck with me and they find their way into my music too. I would think of uh, Veterans Day or the day of a release from war, release from celebration. Mm. So the idea of celebration, happy feet, uh, the Brownian motion liberating the mind from holding on to linear information and just being present, letting go and allowing the flow. And underneath of it all, the meditation lifestyle, which definitely was practicing at that time. So I believe that the consciousness state of the performer, if not also the composer, finds its way as a suggestion to the consciousness or unconsciousness of the listener. As a teacher once told me that Music heals, or the power of music is in its ability to suggest. So the music I was doing and am doing tends to suggest um, a conscious beingness aligned in a meditative state. I think it helps that you're using open tunings. Yes. And my theory there, because there's a... Have you ever heard of X Easter Island Head? Well, no, but what you just said makes... That's what I left out. I was using pentatonic tuning, which is a peaceful tuning. Yeah. I think they were influenced by you because what they, they have open tuning electric guitars, which they hammer. Oh, I see. I got my idea from guitars, <laughs> open tuned guitars. But uh, they do hammered open tuned guitar. That's interesting. Yeah. And I think my theory is that there's no harmonic movement, really. Um, when you have the open tuning, right, you're always playing pretty much the same chord. Yes, uh, but you'll get the movement of harmonics probably in there, like inner angelic melodic. Right, you you get subtle harmonics, and then you get the rhythmic movement. Yeah. So it's kind of like the combination of stillness and movement, both in one action, in one experience. Mm-hmm. So why is it that things like drones and very little harmonic movement tends to be 
associated with New Age music, right? Why is it? Uh, drones also associated with Indian music, like you mentioned. Drones, to me, seem to be a languaging of eternalness, timelessness. That's what I get from drones. If it's a low pedal tone or a bass hell tone or even a chordal or interval drone suggests a continuity, a continuous cyclical forever presentness, which mirrors the attributes of, whether you call it the great spirit or the the field, the continuity of the field. Uh, I think of that also represented in Sanskrit music, Sanskrit language, if you read Sanskrit, there seems to be a suggestion of a line on top of all the alphabet, the continuum, a suggestion of an underlying relentless continuum. And I hear a drone and it drops me into present time to a sense of the eternalness. So how and why did you get into meditation? Very good question. There was a movie called Putney Swope by Robert Downey Sr. Yes. It was produced in, uh, I think, late 69s or early 70s, but it came out around 1971 or 72. And when it came out, I got to see it because I was in it for about 20 or 30 seconds, and I had no idea what the movie was about name like Putney Swope, my part involved me being down. World Trade Center is where it was filmed at night. They use office buildings. So I went in and I didn't see the whole script. I just saw my role and I did my role and it went well. And I kept wondering what this movie is about. It finally came out and I saw it and I was pretty startled at the idea I could be in a movie and not knowing what it's about. I thought maybe it was a Greek tragedy. But the movie had scenes in there that I, I wasn't sure about. The, the use of strong language, the references within the, the Black American community, and uh, the use of plant medicines at that time, and sexual uh, freedom. So all of that was in the movie. And I began wondering, hmm, do I really need to be concerned about that? Until one day, I'm walking down the street in Harlem, nice sunny Sunday, and there's this church with a sign, poetry reading today, free, come in. So I went in, I thought, oh, there's a nice New York thing to do in Harlem, and I went and sat down in the church, and there was maybe one half full of people. And at the mic was this young, vibrant, kind of upset, brother was reading his poetry and the poem seemingly started right after I got in and sat down and the poem I don't remember the lines but the the, the chorus part that kept repeating was da dun da dun da dun da dun da dun and the niggers who did Putney Swope should be offed and the niggers who did Putney Swope should be offed <laughs> so I'm sitting here thinking holy moly and this was the first encounter I had of any backlash to the film. And it started me thinking, maybe I do want to be more conscious of how I put myself in the mass media, but what do I do to handle that? That's when the word meditation came up big time on my radar. And I says, ah, that's what I probably need to do. Find my own relationship to meditation. That way I'll get deeper sense of direction of how to guide myself in the mass media. So that was how I got involved in meditation through Putney School. My first real connection to an effective meditation practice was through the book of Richard Hittleman on Bantam Press, a book, well, a thin book at that time, and it referred to yoga and meditation. But that book demystified the uh, practice of meditation enough for me to find my own relationship with it. Up till that moment, I thought meditation was that the East had a monopoly on it and that we were just simply eavesdropping it on their, on their world. But the meditation process for me involved deep breathing, relaxing the body from head to toe, 
breathing and then taking all the titles off that were ever used to refer to me, relate to me, all the good fancy titles, all the noble titles, all the um, funny titles, take everything off until just I am remains, nothing attached to the I am. Sometimes this would take about 10, 15 minutes, deep breathing, take the titles off, relax the body. And uh, some mind science affirmations at the time to just affirm that this is a good time for meditation and that I and the Father are one. Just go into this super cosmic positive receptivity and then just sit in the silence and the stillness. Um, I knew I was onto something because all the uh, mystical sayings in the Bible to which I was exposed when I was young now made sense. I could relate. I and the Father are one, the kingdom is close at hand, things like that. All of a sudden here I am immersed in the stillness that was easy to maintain for hours. I would begin meditative sitting around 12 at night, going to the 5 in the morning. It was so yummy, 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 yummy. And it was during that time that one night before going into meditation sitting, because my intention was so focused at that time, I attracted this cosmic sound audio hearing experience of um, multiple brass instruments, like a choir or a symphony of brass instruments weaving this timeless, glorious, mantram, a uh, wall of sound, an unlimited wall of sound. Um, that, to me, that happened, I guess, because of my meditative receptivity. And as I did my research right after that event, I discovered that some traditions call it nadam. It's the sound, the soundless sound. Sound with no beginning, no beginning, unstruck. And we hear it we receive it as a pulsation through our cerebral cortex. So that related to what I experienced and didn't experience. What I mean by that is that the experience was that there's no past, <laughs> that it's happening now. And so the experience I'm having is uh, this glorious, timeless nowness. And that uh, the music is not traveling from a distant source and arriving at my ears. So it's non-linear and it's all inclusive. It seems to be like a joyous, ecstatic celebration of a homecoming, a cosmic homecoming. And that happened probably about five or 10 minutes before my usual diving into meditation sitting about midnight. And it was shortly after that, after doing the research and just what was that experience? Why did I have it? What, what am I supposed to do with it? And I was guided to being in a pawn shop maybe a few weeks after that, and I'm pawning my guitar, guitar which I usually play with open tuning. But at the time I needed some cash. I went to a pawn shop there in Queens, New York, and the clerk offered me only $25 for this Yamaha steel string guitar and fiberglass case. And I remember while going into that pawn shop, seeing this auto harp in the window, saying, hmm, there's that chunky instrument that I used to see only in the village in bluegrass ensembles. So here I am at the desk of the clerk. He's offering me only $25 for this guitar in the Martin's case. And I'm feeling like this is not going to work. In an instant, I'm hearing this voice, or I'm hearing what translates as a voice to the effect, don't take money, swap it for the instrument in the window, the auto harp. And I am really startled that this voice is the most present voice I've ever heard from inside my being. And it carried an energy of like a cosmic grandparent, so love and affection and wisdom and guidance, a very super cosmic safe voice say, swap the guitar for the instrument in the window. I was amazed at it. Uh, how is this happening? And I wanted to follow this rabbit hole, so I decided to swap it 
for an extra five dollars too. I left that pawn shop with the guitar, but feeling this at first difficult to explain feeling like I have just buddied up, just buddied up with a cosmic intelligence of some kind. So I was walking inside of a different molecular atomic earth feel at that moment. <laughs> and that continues to happen whenever I get these directions that sound counter to what my rational mind would go. And I follow that. I feel like I've just latched on to an even deeper commitment to a, a transparent field of a, a transcendental intelligence that's somehow right where I am. And I took that auto harp home and began exploring my guitar open tunings and I took the chord bars off and started using sticks and brushes and hammers and eventually electrifying it. I didn't make the connection of just why I was guided to the auto harp until I took it into Manny's music in New York one day, just to explore finding some way to amplify it. And there was already a Diarmin pickup made for the auto harp. And in the store, the, I think the clerk even installed it for me so I could hear it. And as I strummed it in my open tuning, a salesperson from the other side of the store just exclaimed very comically, ah, oh, I'm in heaven. <laughs> and I made the connection, whoa, this is probably the, the direction I must go to uh, make use of that experience I had. That experience is a resource, even though I couldn't record it or notate it, but the emotional impact or the shift that it presented through my conscious awareness of time and space gave me the gift of an alternative time and space within which to perform music and a music that points to this invisible space or this otherworldly space. Wow, what a story. Yes, and each time I tell it, I find some new aspect of it that I had overlooked before. So it was because you had this practice of meditation that you were able to quiet the distractions, the fragmentation of your attention, and receive the sound. You say it's non-linear, so to me that means it's happening everywhere. It comes from anywhere and everywhere. That's a result of your meditation practice. That is that right? Yes, I have to say that it is. Um, meditation, as you probably were allows me to dwell in sustained present time. And this is where the music is. Yes, if I had not practiced meditation, maybe I could have heard the music, but one thing about practicing meditative receptivity is that when these things happen, when you call them an epiphany or a rapture, that I, in my case, was prepared to relax and receive and uh, absorb right and yes in the place of receptivity this is to say that perhaps everyone who's listening to this right now has been exposed to the sound at a time or in a situation where they weren't in the best place to become absorbed in it and let it become integrated into their psyche so you still practice meditation obviously um, you say you, didn't, you don't practice quite as much as you did. You were practicing five hours from 12 at night to five in the morning. But what do you get out of meditation that music doesn't give you? Gee, uh, now I, I can kind of equate the inner music with meditation. But the more time I spent in meditative intention, the uh, more my sense of the meditation realm shifted. Uh, as of late, I don't think I meditate. I think meditation is an eternal state that we contact when we relax, as you said, from things that distract us. The realization is that there is an eternal meditation in progress. It has no ending or beginning. And I don't meditate. I allow my consciousness to my whole field to relax to a place where this meditation 
extends from the background up into my foreground consciousness. And I can walk around with this meditation resonance. I can dance with it, I can perform music. So at the beginning I was sitting still, maybe with cross legs or in an easy chair, and it's one-pointedness and just allow this meditation uh, awareness to baptize me and to embrace me and I become the meditation. Uh, that's to say that I don't say that I meditate, although when people ask, do I meditate? I know they're asking, it says, do I involve myself in the practice of meditation as a daily? Yes, as a lifestyle, yes. It was the early experience with meditation that, that inspired me to reset my whole life around the meditation experience and to stop everything and let meditation be the center of my life, my decision-making process, my opinions, my attitudes, my priorities. So you, you embody meditation, which is extraordinary. Yes, we could say that, embodying meditation. And extraordinary, well, I've had some teachers who showed me that, that it could be done. Yeah, you studied with Satchitananda, Swami Satchitananda. Yeah, he was one of my first exposures to model the, uh, the attitude of meditative lifestyling for inner peace, inner ease. Then there was Sri Chinmoy, another one, impressed me with his ability to remain in this rather serene place while giving lectures. Then there is Sri Brahmananda Saraswati, Krishnamurti. These were the people who, who lit my enthusiasm for meditative lifestyle. What was the title of the book uh, that you mentioned, the Hittleman book? Do you remember? It was something like The Little Book of Meditation and Yoga something like that, on Bantam Press by Richard Hittleman. Did you follow at all the jazz musicians, spiritual jazz musicians, like Pharaoh Sanders, Sun Ra, Coltrane, A Love Supreme, or even Miles Davis with In a Silent Way? Did that influence you at all? They did. The word follow is the tricky word here. Following in the terms of I don't know if I ever went to a concert of any of these artists or had any of the recordings. I have some of the recordings now. But when I would chance hear them at a party or a gathering or in a car radio, the music always struck a very high and cosmically positive tone. Alice Coltrane, I might have been a little more aware of seeing some videos of her on the harp. Right. There was all these artists supported my feelings to explore that sound. At the time, piano was the instrument at which I would uh, fall into that uh, reaching for the cosmic, uh, joyful sound. And when the zither came on board, this is fully, fully loaded around 1978, I had really developed the vocabulary for the electric zither, because there was no one else to show me that instrument. I was the first one to use it that way, electrically, that I knew of. So I had to develop my own vocabulary. And the vocabulary was uh, aided by my observing what other instruments were doing. Um, percussionists, guitarists, harpists, and they, people like Alice Coltrane and uh, Sun Ra, inspired me, just hearing them whenever I got a chance, inspired me to reach into this non-linear space, to reach beyond the, uh, the expected pattern of music. My sense now, the direction of music, is to be very mindful of referring to yin energy and androgynous energy in music, that uh, space is yin quality. And that if there's not enough yin in my or our sense of present time, we can get agitated, locked into third, third dimensional claustrophobia. And I wouldn't be surprised if that's what's playing a large part in the way the energy of the planet is going, that the energy of the planet is lacking a yin balance, and that uh, 
musicians can do that, especially ambient music, can focus on the yin quality, the light, spacious, ethereal sound that more of us are ready to hear and ready to be immersed in. And so when Sun Ra says space is the place, to me he's referring to that open etheric feel as the place to be, to stay out of agitation, to stay out of uh, congestion, or to move into a balanced yin-yang energy. Don't forget to include space. Maybe that's the reason why there's all of a sudden this renaissance, this resuscitation of interest in your music. I mean, there's always been a large contingent that listened to your music and followed your your musical output. But it seems that in the last four or five years, there's really been a resurgence of interest. Uh, and I'm wondering if that has to do you know, with what you're talking about, about more of that energy, that yin energy, what you call yin energy, getting into the culture at large. That's surely acceptable conclusion, along with the fact that people like Warp Records and All Saints have done a very strong push of my music the last five, six years, really making it very strong promotional campaign. But the younger people, the young listeners, I wouldn't be surprised if they're hearing the modeling of freedom, the modeling of uh, upwardly, inwardly mobile energy to support young people in their quest for space, etheric space to breathe and to feel their higher calling or to feel balanced in a world that may be over-rocked or over-jazzed <laughs> or over-acided. They're growing, whether they're in college or high school. They're looking for models. They're looking for signs, visions. They're on a vision quest. And I would say, if anything, the music that I've been able to co-produce with companies offers a vision quest-friendly listening experience. Space to think, to ponder, space to let higher visions and insights come to the foreground. Yeah, and you talk about record companies, working with them. You've also been doing a lot of collaborations lately. You collaborated with my buddy Justin Beretta. Yes, uh, Justin Beretta and his crew approached me about two months ago to collaborate with an artist producer named Carlos Nino. Carlos approached me to supply a spoken word track over pre-produced music. And he just left it up to me to come up with what I felt guided to. And what came up was this rather inductive meditation, guided induction, inspired by uh, a new age, old new age um, circle song, that we are one in the infinite sun forever and ever and ever. Song always inspired this uh, altered arrangement of the words for a guided, inductive immersion experience. And it seems to be doing pretty well on Spotify, uh, which comes back to your statement of noticing that there is a growing audience for this kind of musical offering. And and I'm impressed to see the Spotify ratings of this so far, which just matches what you're saying. There is an audience for this. There is a, a listening heart on the planet for this kind of music, this kind of direction in uh, recorded performance. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's gratifying to see that. Don't expect the same material rewards you got from selling cassettes uh, one at a time, though, from streaming on Spotify. Well, the joy of doing a cassette, <laughs> sometimes I did them one at a time and have somebody else purchase it. At that time, it was 10 or $15. That was labor-intensive, but there was a joy in it. Uh, after a while, when uh, the demand got larger, then I uh, outsourced or got contracted larger companies to produce the cassettes. But you're right, the streaming is... Uh, 
showing up in a different way on the royalty end, which is quite phenomenal in the fact that when I was doing cassettes, I don't think I was aware of CDs. When I did my first contract for a recording contract, there was this suspicious or this interesting phrase in the contracts that were able to release your music in known forms and in forms that are yet unknown. <laughs> right. <laughs> Technologies now known or hereafter, whatever. Yes. Now to hear some of my early music released on CD is uh, unique, and to hear it streamed is even more unique. Available in your headphones on your iOS device. Sweet. Indeed, a blessing indeed. I'm happy. <laughs> <laughs> a little laughing meditation there, huh? Yes, indeed. Laughter is the shortest distance between two people and the shortest distance between me and myself. But, uh, I've always loved laughter. I've always loved watching the human physique uh, lose it through laughter. And laughter, me, laughter to me is a very high language of success, emotional success. That is a very open laughter. Of course, there's something called nervous laughter, but in uh, laughter play shops that I and uh, my uh, companion, workshop companion offer, we go toward uh, moving from meditation, awareness, relaxation, yoga spaces into an open breath laughter so that the laughter is actually acknowledging us uh, inwardly, our, our abdomen, our heart, our endocrine system, our brain, so that uh, we're consciously not just sending laughter out from our mouth, but we're using the sound of our voice inwardly as a positive psychology to embrace our higher <laughs> self. So it's uh, inward mobile, inward meditation, we call it, so that one could do this at home and uh, do it and be effective and it's justifiable. You're actually validly using the sound of your voice, the physical vibration of your laughing voice and the positive psychological energy of your voice to give yourself a baptism, a wash. Ah. <laughs> I'm sure you and most people recognize how quickly laughter can alter the sense of vibration in a space and time. Oh, yeah, you say you can do it at home. You, you have to do it at home. You do it on the street, they'll give you a straitjacket. Well, it's interesting to say that. I've done this on the street and on subways, and rather than a straitjacket, people use it as an interesting diversion. People might be on the subway, just nothing to do with their time, especially before earphones and iPhones. I would laugh, and people would find it amusing. In New York, you can get away with quite a bit. And uh, I think you have to do quite a bit before a straitjacket comes here in New York. <laughs> <laughs> I think you almost have to call up the people to come get you there. <laughs> That's true. So what is a laughing play shop? That's where we get to have fun with our laughter, look at our laughter, explore the idea of laughing inwardly to use the physical sound of our voice and the positive psychological uh, nature of our laughing voice to stimulate the uh, center of the brain, the throat, the uh, thymus gland in the chest, the heart, the abdominal organs, open the lungs and smiling. It's to use laughter inwardly as an internal massage radiation release, preferably in the morning before getting out of bed, to jumpstart your day on a higher vibrant psychological level. Also to open up our laughter personality, our laughter self-esteem, to learn how to embrace our laughter, and so not to hold it back when we know something is funny, and even participate in supporting other people's laughter. So a laughter play shop would open up with some chanting, east-west, some non-traditional chanting and some improvisational chanting, and then getting into uh, the six or seven different little exercises we're going to do with our laughter. As I mentioned, laughing into the brain, into the pituitary gland, laughing into the throat, 
the thymus, laughing into the heart area, then into the chest of thymus. Laughing to vibrate and massage the abdominal organs, laughing to totally release the stagnant or stale air in the alveoles of the lungs. And a certain kind of laughter that accompanies them smiling, a deep, open, rich, therapeutic smile. So the laughter play shop, play is more the, the focus than work. It's to, we're playing with it and we get into the play zone by learning how to spontaneously explore the sensation of sending our laughter and sending our voice inward. That just reminds me we say play music. Yes, yes, that's exactly when I ask participants who here has played today. And musicians will raise their hand, yeah, because the spontaneous exploration of the sensation of sound or the tactile experience of interacting with your instrument. Can you make me funny? Can you make people funny? I mean, you can make them laugh. You started out as a comic. I'm asking you 15 questions in one yes. breath. Well, the principle would be to have uh, like an extended exchange with you to sense where you're ready to allow people to laugh. In other words, I've met people who have an unconscious shtick. They have something that's funny about them but I don't know if they are emotionally or psychologically ready to let people laugh at them. <laughs> 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 and they might be a little emotionally sensitive in that area. But then you have the brave ones who somehow they've learned how to accept their shtick uh, and they, they let writers write for it or they, they're so aware of it that they, they know how to bring it on stage with them. It might be the way they move their eyes and maybe the way they form words or the way they move on stage. So writing for somebody like your question and writing for you, I would need to actually study your presence. My shtick. And your sh study your presence to see what kind of shticks are available. You know? <laughs> well, shticks and stones can yeah. break my bones, but I'm, very, I'm brave, I think. Some shticks are, it's necessary that the performer does not laugh. And some, some people's shticks are their laughter. Their laughter is part of their shtick. But being serious and sincere is a very strong element in many comedians' shtick. You must appear warm, lovable, embraceable. <laughs> yes, thank you. I, I don't think I can achieve that. I'll give up on that uh, ambition. Sticks, sticks will allow you to do that. They'll point people to your vulnerability. Oh. I don't know if I want that. Ah, see, now there's the point. Some people have are, are funny, but they're too vulnerable in that area. They're, they couldn't handle. I'm a stick in the mud, I guess. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, it kind of, you know, these, these trends, uh, these threads in your life, you start out as, stand -up, as a stand-up comic. Or that's one of the things you do when you're starting out. You play piano in a church. So right there and there, when you're playing piano in the church, you were young, very young at the time, a teenager, and that's a spiritual environment. That's spiritual music right there. Yes, just to clarify, I was playing in the basement on the piano. And eventually, three years ago, produced my first solo album in a church, the Unitarian Church in Brooklyn. Sun piano? Is that sun piano? Sun piano and moon piano. Right. You know, I would say that because you start out playing in that space, you keep talking about space, you're in a spiritual space. Maybe you're not playing for a service, but the space itself. Oh, yeah, the intention. Yeah. And so I'm really trying to understand how you embody meditation. I know that you do. And it seems that you had... You went through this process where you did intense meditation for many years, right? Many, many years. Yep. And then you were able to carry that with you into music. Yes. So you needed that training, that practice. Absolutely. So I needed that training. And I think my discipline in music prepared me for the discipline I practiced for meditation. Aha. Absolutely. Yes. In fact, I feel more confident about artists, musicians, actors, performing artists 
really grasping their meditation experience because I believe they have already a discipline model in, in, in effect in their lives. Yes, that's, that's my whole shtick right there. <laughs> you just got out of the mud. <laughs> <laughs> Wait, you pulled me out of the mud. I'm sorry you had to step in the mud in order to pull me out of it. But uh, no, that's, that's it right there. I mean, to me, there are 12, what I call 12 bridges that connect music with meditation. But two of the biggest, most important ones are exactly what you said, the discipline and concentration, the ability to focus. And we've been taught, we've been mentioning this before, to be able to focus, to pay attention in a certain qualitative way, tuning into one thing and tuning out everything else. Yes, selective awareness. I did some work on that too. I had to learn how to sit still and stare at a selected point on the wall for 21 minutes. Of course, you swallow your saliva and you breathe. Yep. But resist the urge to fidget. Your phone is off. Just see how long it takes over the period of days or weeks for you to be able to sit for 21 minutes focused on one item. Yep. And it's an educational journey. And the big payoff is to discover there's another subtle world in the midst of the one you think you know. This other world that's ready to pop through and become visible to me the moment I'm qualified with my concentration level to observe it. Yeah, you know, that's classic Zen technique. That's how I, I first learned meditation in high school. Uh -huh, high school. Well, my school didn't teach it, but around the corner from me was a Zen center, and I was fascinated with Zen. You know, I wanted to reach enlightenment. I was 17. It's about time I get enlightened. <laughs> so, so. <laughs> and there's a stick there. Yeah, now yeah. you get Okay. Yeah. Anyway, so yes, you stare at the wall because Bodhidharma, the founder of Chan, which is the Chinese predecessor to Zen, he meditated in a cave for nine years, staring at the wall of the cave. So you stare, you talked about staring. Yes, you stare at a point. And then when you do that for hours, that becomes the most fascinating. That point in the wall is just a target of endless fascination. Yeah. And then you can, it, it's almost like you're contracting your entire being. Then you go into this tiny hole and you emerge with this explosive power of awareness. Absolutely. Like watering the lawn, you know, you have a hose, and then if you cover up the hose, the stream is more powerful. Mm -hmm. Well, just like you're doing now, when I would attempt to express my enthusiasm with friends through words, I didn't feel I was inspiring them. <laughs> it was more my music that was communicating what I needed to share through music. And what you just said to me, I relate to very, very closely. Yeah. So when you, you were talking about selective awareness, I'd never heard, I mean, I've heard that term before, but I hadn't connected it with what I do. So that's very cool. Yeah. That's, and that's from the nature of being a musician, I think. Yes. Selected awareness. Uh, memorable experience was a lecture. A workshop teacher had us all in this room at a retreat and showed us this video. In the video, there were three or four basketball players dribbling a ball and shooting it to a hoop for about three, four or five minutes. And then he turned the video off and he turned to the classes. How many saw the basketball? Yeah. How many saw the basketball players? Yeah. How many saw the gorilla moving around? Oh, yes. Uh, <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I failed that test multiple times. I knew there was a gorilla there. I still couldn't see it. Uh, and when I finally saw it, I said, wow, about that. Selective awareness. You, you see what it is you are intending to see, and you filter out other things are going on. So that's to say, how much of the present moment are we filtering out of our awareness without knowing we're filtering it out? And isn't it necessary to filter out? A lot of things from our awareness? Well, we say it's necessary to filter out a lot of the past lives and pains and things, but it's necessary to function in the world that you think is your priority. Even if the world is uh, weighing you down or oppressing you, you feel you need to be present there to function 
and protect and secure your assets than is necessary. A mother is necessary to stay alert for her child. An airplane pilot needs to stay alert so that this plane doesn't become a statistic. A commander has to stay conscious in order that his or her personnel don't get wiped out in the field. But after retirement, you say, well, I've raised a family, I've gone to college, I've done the job, I've run my own firm, I've got my money in the bank retirement, now what do I do with my life? I've done all the big things. I don't need another lover, I don't need another million dollars, I don't need another Porsche, I don't need another home in the Hamptons. What is it that's going to be meaningful for me now? And then, he says, why, why don't you bring your awareness more into present time and have a go at your immortality, have a go at your divinity? And there, you say, well, I can afford to do that now. I, I can afford to risk pulling my awareness out of the linear field for a while and be here now for a while. Yes, indeed. Yes, I think especially women who will reach their 50s or 60s, you say this is the new crop on the planet, women over 50s who have done the thing, they've raised the children, gone to school, done the job. Now they're in a right place to pursue inwardly mobile activity. So I have two more questions for you. We talked about ambient music and ethereal music, etc. Yes. And new age, etc. So somebody was interviewing me for an article about music and mindfulness. And she said to me, what about listening to music? She said, I can't stand new age music. It's so boring. I don't blame her. <laughs> you don't blame her. I don't blame her. Why not? Because um, some music that's being marketed as new age um, bores me too, if I'm not in the right place. And uh, music that assumes you're in the right place to be digging is, is uh, assumptional. Some music knows how to include you in a way that doesn't say you have to be in a meditative place. It's music that touches you in an emotional way, it's poetic, or it provides you, like I say, humanistic music. It provides you with a breathing space, with a place that you do feel like relaxing. Um, then there's new age music that might be generated by someone who's not really a sensitive composer or a mindful healing uh, intellectual, or someone who isn't in touch with uh, what it feels like to be in bliss or to be in peace. Um, they might have a, a superficial idea of what it feels like. And it doesn't, they don't quite reach through the medium and touch the listener where the listener needs to be touched. And so we said there's a universal meditation in progress right now. If I can touch it where I am and express it through my music, the one who somewhere else will feel it, even if it's not in their language. A Muslim will feel it in their language, the Hebrew will feel it in their language, and Native American will feel it in their language, because it's humanistic. It touches the right places, the heart. It says, open and breathe. It says, be free, reduce anxieties, or it might release subconscious stress patterns. When it does that, whether it's called New Age music or not, the listener will feel, hey, this is involving me, it's including me, it's, it's respecting my presence, my breathing, my energy. And some music, you put it on and this is really, <laughs> where are we going with this? And uh, those musicians may be on the path to discovering and they have to go through the period. You know, you go through periods of doing it and have somebody say, Hey, that sucks. <laughs> you have to hear, I had to hear that a couple of times. And it does something to you. It makes you might feel, oh gosh, you feel like you've taken a step backwards. But then success is involved in what you do uh, with all the feedback you get. And I've had a lot of feedback that has coached me. One of my interesting feedbacks you gave me correlated to earlier feedbacks. When I was doing hammered zither, I thought it was uh, very exciting. And people would say they found it meditative. And I was impressed with 
that. That was feedback that helped me a lot. Then there was another feedback in uh, Washington Square Park, these European musicians who played mandolin all the time. One day, one of the mandolin players came over to me and says, you know, I listen to your music. It goes plinkty, 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 no melody. I don't understand that music. <laughs> <laughs> and there I had to actually, oh, well, do I believe in this? And I said, yes, more ambient. I didn't use the word at the time. It's more of an atmospherical presence rather than a melody that stops and starts. So that's very beautiful. Very beautiful. My my students teach me, you know, and one assignment, I remember the first time I, I heard this, I did this, I give them a, an assignment to compose a piece of music that's a nonverbal guided meditation. You know, John, there have been composers that have done that, Miles Davis in a silent way, John Cage, you know, four minutes and 33 seconds, uh, Pauline Oliveros, et cetera, et cetera. And one student wrote for his project a house song, an instrumental house record, you know, with four on the floor. And I asked the students, I said, to you, is this meditative? And a huge proportion of them said yes. And I realized that for some people, the context in which they listen to music and which they've grown up lends them the ability to get a meditative state out of different kinds of music that one would not think would be possible. Mm -hmm. What are your feelings about that? My feelings are that uh, you mentioned it in the context. If it's a nice sunny day, I'm laying on the beach and everything's feeling mellow and I'm hearing Farrell uh, Williams' song, uh, Happiness Is, Mm -hmm. It'll merge with my state. And so the listening becomes a yoga. It provides a sense of unity with an expanded space. So if music is allowing me to do that, jazz music can allow me the sense of feeling one with a, a bigger space than I was feeling before the music was playing. It takes me up into an expanded space. And who's to say that someone having an experience calls it meditation? Meditation to me takes me to a lighter freer, more open sense of present time. Your Zen master would require that meditation doesn't happen until he bangs cymbals in your head and leaves you in the silence afterwards. <laughs> so someone has to have a constructed musical audio event going on to draw them out of their maybe overwhelming personal life situation. Whereas new age music would probably be too subtle or too soft or too, they call it wimpy, too wimpy for them. You need music to reach through the speakers and grab you by the jugular and pull you out. <laughs> aggressive music to take you higher, to take you out of maybe your environment. Well, well I found that you can uh, adapt the harmonics and the rhythms of R&B hip hop and strip it down to some extent and bring in and elements and then take them out and do that in such a way that it it uh, encourages focus and calmness in the listener. And now my final question, you've described your feeling of alternate space and time while playing music. And this is, seems to be a, I don't want to use the word shtick, but it's because it's serious. It's, it's a theme, and I'm trying to understand it. I think I do, but music itself is time-connected. It, it's temporal. It's the procedure of notes and sounds and mm -hmm. tones within time. How do you perceive that as alternate, as out of time? Music is a way of distorting time or drawing the, the mind out of its function as a linear time processing function. Mind in its pure place, as I understand, is just I am. I am is the purest thought. That means without anything attached to it. 
so we're not practicing linear self-observation. So music, two chord, three chord, four chord, repetitious music and R&B. I think in R&B, I can feel a timelessness, even if the lyrics are more sensual or sexual. The underlying arrangement suggests a mellowness. And for the awareness, it, it suggests a relaxed sense of time flow. Some of your music can do that. I know it's the two chord progressions, your R&B, slow music ballads. So music can manage time and it can distract us from what we think of as normal time flow. Of course, your drone music, as I mentioned earlier, connects me to a sense of eternalness. I never thought of it that way, but now I will listen to it that way. The part about the droning suggesting eternal. You had mentioned that before, but it did sink in. So this has been, as I uh, had predicted, an incandescent and invigorating discussion. Of course, I'm five inches away from uh, hitting my head on the ceiling talking to you and learning uh, so much. So thank you so much for coming here. Thank you. I really, really appreciate it. It's been beautiful and uh, uplifting, an honor and a privilege. And thank you for probing around and allowing me to shine light on some things that I needed to be reminded of. Okay, thank you very much. Bliss on, Richard.